Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. You may not realize this, but the behaviors that occur between the crate and the gate at any given dog sport trial really affect your success inside the ring. Unfortunately, these behaviors are not taught in most classes, whether online or in person. And that's why I've pulled together my webinar, Success from Crate to Gate. In the webinar, you will learn all of the things that I do and that I teach my students to do between the time that they open the crate and the time that they enter the gate. We're talking things that I call placeholder behaviors. We're talking loose leash walking. We're talking really sexy stuff like downstays, but we're also talking when and why giving your dog a lot of reinforcers outside the ring might be a good or a bad thing. I hope you'll join me. It airs live February 21st, 2023, and there's a link to sign up in your show notes. Of course, if you're a member of Patreon or the CogDog Classroom membership, there's a discount for you. So be sure to race over there before you sign up. See you there. Hey y'all, today this is a follow-up episode from the Choice versus Structure episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, I encourage you to jump back a few weeks and hit that one first. After that episode, I received a question in Patreon from Connor. And Connor wrote, when using structure to help dogs navigate challenging environments, how do we avoid setting up the scenario where the dog expects input, i.e. cues slash reinforcers, and without becomes varying levels of fully unglued? The end goal being a dog who can exist in most settings without constant management through cues or reinforcers. Example. The herdy thing, who can, with feedback, stick to your side and focus and stare into your eyeballs in big feelings environments, but when left to their own devices, will tea kettle cuss lunge become fully unhinged? So thanks, Connor, for that question and for further just food for thought on this topic. I'm going to dive in now. So there's a couple of things that are worth talking about. Number one is that we do need to be mindful of what dogs we are asking to exist in what environments. Because your end goal of a dog who can exist in most settings without constant management or constant, I'm gonna say instruction, is not a realistic goal for all dogs. That might be a realistic goal for a lot of our pet dog clients. I hope that it is because I hope those are the dogs that folks have found themselves with in their homes. But a lot of our sport dog candidates are going to thrive under more instruction. And a lot of them are going to be kind of instructed by the environment in ways that other dogs might not be instructed. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give an example. Let's say I have a young Border Collie. I don't, but let's, let's say that I do. Let's say I've got like a seven month old Border Collie. My seven month old Border Collie is going to be instructed by fast moving cars, for instance in a way that my seven month old show line or service line golden retriever is not. So I could go to the Starbucks on the corner that's next to a semi busy street with my seven month old golden and I could hang out and have a coffee and 
bring a mat for my puppy and use some food and basically hang out and have that be an enjoyable experience, a nice socialization outing for my golden retriever who's going to lie on their mat and generally be able to take in and accept that environment without me having to overly manage them. But now I've got my seven-month-old Border Collie and I read about that in a book about puppies or on a website about puppies and I go, okay, I'm going to do that. And I go and now my seven-month-old Border Collie puppy who's not being structured or informed of how to act in this environment is attempting to chase the cars and is lunging on its leash um, or is just kind of cowering or hovering under the table staring at the cars going by and that's not good either right so these different dogs are being informed by the environment differently and so therefore they might need more information from you or they might function with less right so my golden is probably okay to hang out and watch the cars go by and watch the people go by and just kind of take in and and exist. Whereas my seven-month-old Border Collie, if they're going to be in that environment, needs to be informed by me how to act because the cars are informing them in a completely different way. So if my end goal is a dog that can exist, and I'm taking your words, Connor, can exist in most settings without constant management through cues and reinforcers, then I'm also gonna need to think about the dog that I've chosen to live my life with because that isn't realistic for everybody. I think that most dogs can learn how to exist in certain, in kind of whatever the environment is through training, but some of those dogs are gonna be dogs that need you to be consistently providing that information for them because the environment is providing them with information that it isn't, you know, providing other dogs. So hopefully that makes sense that some dogs are going to take in the environment differently and as different information where, you know, one dog sees something as neutral, another dog sees that as informative of how to act. And so if the dog sees it as neutral, I'm gonna allow the dog to see it as neutral but if the dog sees it as something that they need to do something about, then it's my, my job to step in and inform them of what I'd like them to do instead. And that circles back to the point I made in the choice and structure episode, which is that both predictability and agency are important. Only predictability can exist with zero agency. So I can very predictably insist that you are going to do a downstay next to these cars. If we stick with that example, I can predictably insist that you're going to do a downstay and I can use, I could even use force. I could use force to get you that downstay or I could not, I could use food, but I'm going to predictably insist that that's what you're expected to do is a downstay. If I'm going to involve agency in that situation though, I'm going to give you several opportunities to take you know a quick second to look around the environment and make a choice and if your choice is to lunge at cars then that informs me that you are not yet prepared to have any agency in this situation so i need to take it i need to take it away from you and i need to instruct you instead about what you're going to do and i don't need to let you fully lunge to know that right so like if my young dog wants to chase cars or lunge at cars and this y'all insert whatever scenario i'm talking coffee shop on the corner here but i could be talking about walking through the neighborhood park and there are dogs playing chuck it i could be talking about walking through the neighborhood and you have to walk past this elementary school and there's all these screaming kids i could be talking about any variety of things so if you show me with your behavior that your choices will not be appropriate for this scenario then i'm going to make your choices for you and 
on a global scale, I want to be putting you in as many situations as I can where you can make the choices that I like for you to make. So I'm not going to opt to repeat this outing with my young dog that wants to chase cars until I think that dog has other choices that they can make in their back pocket, has other coping skills that they can utilize other than chasing those cars. And what happens then is, you know, what has happened when that happens is that I have become the source of information and the dog has said, oh, when I go on an outing with my person, my best bet is to look to the person for instruction and reinforcement. And if I, if I don't know that, if I don't know that that's my best bet up against speeding cars, then we're not going to put that up against speeding cars. But again, we are getting to that thing that you're trying to avoid. You don't want the dog that can stick to your side, focus, stare into your highballs in those big feelings environments. But in order for that to be possible, we need to have it not be a big feelings environment. We will not be successful teaching all dogs in our care to not feel in big ways. Instead, we want to help them know how to act when they feel big. And what that might mean is that we instruct them or inform them in those situations. So what we're talking about here is something that can happen, which is that you have shifted the kind of motivating operations at play. So if the dog wants to engage in any number of undesired behaviors like lunge at cars or lunge at other dogs or bark at people, whatever, it is in our best interest then to look at what's motivating them in those situations and see if we can kind of see if we can do one of two things either give them the thing that they're after in the first place so honor that initial motivating operation honor honor the initial consequence that they're seeking through that behavior by routing them to a behavior that's more appropriate for us so essentially a differential reinforcement procedure so saying you see cars i want that to mean you look at me and when you look at me i give you what you wanted in the first place regarding those cars or the other way to do it is to shift the motivation in the in that scenario, shift the motivation that exists under those antecedents to be something that is more functional for us. And that's gonna be more realistic when it's something like chasing cars because the motivation behind chasing cars, first of all, is non-linear, multifaceted, probably exists in the brain and the body and not necessarily just outside and in the world. And also it could mean just that cars keep moving away, which, they're going to do anyway, regardless of what the dog does. And then there's going to be another one that shows up, which, you know, again, these poor dogs trying to live in our urban environments. Same goes for, I want to bark at a person. Most people that are being barked at do walk away. Usually that is what the dog is seeking. So you're going to need to help the dog not bark and utilize that functional reinforcer of the person moving away or make your contrived reinforcers matter more in those circumstances and when you make your contrived reinforcers matter more than anything in the world that is when you get really nice obedience but you do also get that stick to your side focus stare into your eyeballs situation so what we're talking about here is we're talking about a fine line and we're talking about a balance to be found but the essential answer is that if I am getting a dog that is kind of nervously pushing me for reinforcement, which I think is what you're talking about, a dog that is like, I'm uncomfortable, so I'm gonna push you for reinforcement. If I'm getting that, I know that the environment that I've put this dog in is not appropriate for them until they have different skills. And I'm going to teach them skills 
that don't require pushing me for reinforcement. For instance, a nice subtle, a nice downstay. And then I'm gonna try to insert those behaviors into those circumstances. And if the dog tells me, wow, in these circumstances today at my age, in the body that I'm living in this, <laughs> this lap through, through life, I am unable to engage in that behavior, then my personal choice as a dog trainer is to say, then how can I not put you in that situation? Or if it's a situation you have to be, how can I instruct you best so that you can do kind of the right thing? So what is so important here, Connor, is that you are always watching what the motivations are, that you are always paying very close attention to what the dog is actually working to achieve, and that you are also hearing them out when they tell you that you are asking too much. And they're telling you they're asking too much if they are pushing you really hard for reinforcement. You know, unless the training has been such that in any environment, that's how they are, if they know that reinforcement's available. And in which case, that's a training problem, right? It is no mistake that you mentioned herding dogs when you said the herding thing can, if given the feedback, stick to my side and stare into my eyeballs because these dogs are designed to be highly regimented in tough environments. They're not designed to go with the flow. They're not designed to just take in a lot of stimuli and do nothing about it. And I think we need to honor that in them. Honoring that in them means two things. It means I'm not gonna put you in situations that you can't handle. And it also means when you're in a situation that's a little tough for you, because there's a difference between you can't handle it and it's a little tough for you. When you're in a situation that is a little tough for you, I'm gonna give you the answers. You can lean on me for the answers. And when you show me that choice is not going to go well for either of us, I'm not going to give you one. I'm going to have your back in such a way that I am not letting you flounder at the end of your leash until you eventually decide to come back to me. I'm going to immediately ask you to come back to earth if I see certain body language pieces come from you. And if in this environment I have created a dog who can be only highly regimented or completely unglued, then that is an environment that is too much for me to ask of you in this current moment. And I'm gonna find where my splits are because I'm big into getting dogs as functional as I possibly can, of course, but I am not big in, you know, expecting every single dog that exists on the planet to function in every single environment that exists. So I hope that clears it up. Please keep asking if there are more questions from anybody on this topic. And I'll round out this episode with a few more Patreon questions. This one comes from Devin who writes, I have a young Aussie mini American cross. She is a very fast motion sensitive dog and I'm very awkward person who can't keep seem to run and speak at the same time. When we train at home, she's a very calm and thoughtful dog. She learns very quickly with very few repetitions. When we go to agility class, she screams, barks, and has redirected on me a few times biting. She gets really high and frustrated with me. I have had definite improvements in my handling, but her arousal levels and frustration barking seems to be getting worse. I just don't know how to bridge the gap between home and class to tone down the barking and the biting. So Devin, if class is that different from home and what you're doing isn't that different from home to class. Like if you're a completely different person in class and you're being asked to do things that are too hard for you as a handler, then that needs to be addressed. But if not, then the class environment is not working for your dog. And 
if the environment dial is kind of turned to full volume, then we need the challenge of the other things to be turned down to the lowest volume that it can go. So you're gonna want to be pushing yourself as a handler in your backyard where it's easier for your dog and not in class. You're gonna want to be doing stupidly simple stuff in class. Like can the dog do a jump and a tunnel and then run to a pre-placed reward? Great. If she can do that, throw a blind cross in there as well. If she can do that, throw a rear cross in there as well. You're probably trying to run full courses. You're probably making mistakes. She's probably getting really frustrated. This is a class environment situation. I would also really encourage you to jump in the membership if you're not in the membership already. And the way to join the membership is always linked in the podcast notes and it's on my website. But essentially, what we're doing over in the membership is we're talking about these issues and we're giving people tips and tricks and everybody's kind of getting involved. The other thing that is coming out this year is my revamped version of my class worked up and that will be really helpful to you. It'll be available as a standalone thing, but you will also have access to it in the membership. So I hope to see you over there, Devin, and take the kind of turn one dial up, therefore turn another dial down piece of advice really seriously and talk to your instructor about it. Next one's from Nikki who writes, I know I've heard you speak about a study or a class that focuses on the benefits of training while doing behavior modification, but I can't find the information. I think it was from Ken Ramirez, but that's all I can remember. Could you remind me? So Nikki, you can't find it because that's not quite what you're remembering. There is not a study or a class that I'm aware of. What I talk about is my anecdotal experience that dogs that are involved in high-level training have better behavioral outcomes in behavior modification programs. And I have seen this and I have said this for a very long time, and when I heard Ken Ramirez say the exact same thing at Clicker Expo several years ago, I think it was Clicker Expo 2016, I felt extremely validated. So that's why you're that's why you're thinking of his name. He stated the same thing. He also st- stated that there's not a study demonstrating this that it's purely anecdotal for him as well. So I'm just going to state again kind of what the statement is and if anybody's a grad student or maybe already studying behavior change in animals and they want to put together some sort of study on this and uh, want to email me about it, please feel free. But the statement is that dogs that are involved in high-level training projects have better outcomes in behavior modification. So an example from Ken Ramirez's work would be the dogs that were undergoing behavior modification work at Shed Aquarium for serious things like dog-directed aggression, reactivity, things like that, separation anxiety. And those dogs were also involved in his training projects like they were experimental training projects like counting and um, match to sample types of high level concept training the dogs that were involved in his program had better behavioral outcomes in the other programs and he wasn't working with them in the other programs so this doesn't have to do with like the training relationship with the person it has to do with something else and we could speculate all day as to what it has to do with but essentially it's something I observe, it's something he observes, it's something that a couple of my other colleagues have stated they observe. There isn't hard data on it, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. All right, next one's from Kate who writes, I'd love to hear about how to approach training with a dog that has a hair trigger sensitivity to pressure. It's really emotionally difficult to try and navigate keeping training fun and feel like a game keep loops clean and I have to be super careful to split things down and not lump. If I lump, it's immediately over. Too much pressure and frustration. So Kate, first of all, the word pressure is a little bit fraught in dog training. It means an entirely different thing depending on who you're talking to. So I'm going to assume that what you mean here is that this is a dog that if 
there's any level of confusion or misunderstanding or lack of clarity in your training, the dog is ready to stop. The dog would like to quit. The dog does not trust the training process enough to hang in there through those moments. And the answer is to start at the beginning and act like this dog doesn't know anything and teach them to trust the training situation. My course, Shaping Demystified, is actually all for this. It is designed for dogs who have kind of two problems. So it's designed for the dog that you describe, which tells you very clearly when you have not engaged in a clean loop or tells you very quickly and easily that you have that you have lumped like you like you mentioned so that's lumping criteria so asking for too many things kind of all at once and it's also geared towards those dogs that like frantically throw behaviors at you it is the same problem but a different temperament of dog that's bringing it to the table so Shaping Demystified is available through my platform. It's also available through the membership. And again, all of that is linked in the notes at the classroom. I hope to see you over there for that because it is, you got to start over, clean yourself up, teach the dog to trust the process, teach the dog when they're expected to um, move and when they're expected to be still, teach the dog where reinforcement's coming from, etc. You're probably putting too much responsibility on them, probably historically, the dog has felt a little bit too frustrated and they just don't trust the process. So you have to start over, kind of build the process up from scratch. Kate went on to write, also, I'd love to talk more about how to manage human emotions with dogs that are challenging. I find myself getting very frustrated and desperate when I feel like I have to be perfect for my dog every single training session. I have pretty severe anxiety and I'm really struggling keeping my cool when things are unraveling. So that goes with the next question here, which is that Suzanne writes, this isn't a training question. In your travels and interactions with dog people of the internet, have you found any mental health professionals that specialize in human dog sport competitors? I found myself spiraling during and after a trial this past weekend over trauma related to past dog things I didn't know. Do these people exist out there? So Kate is asking, how do I manage my human emotions? And Suzanne is asking, do you know a therapist? <laughs> and the answer is that, you know, the information exists out there in books and free websites. There's a lot of free resources. TikTok is actually a decent resource. Obviously, if you are vetting the people that you're listening to, making sure that they're real credentialed professionals, there's podcasts, there is so much free information, and then there's also paid resources. I can't, I can't give you a name of a therapist that's going to be perfect for either of you, um, Kate or Suzanne. But I do know that mental health professionals are who you need and not me for for these questions if you've got that pretty severe anxiety kate like you mentioned listen so do i if you can't keep your cool when things are unraveling with your dog you, that tells me that that might be part of what's going on with this dog that doesn't trust the process right and so addressing that is part of getting them to trust the process and addressing that is not we'll stop doing it addressing it is getting really real about where it's coming from and teaching yourself some coping skills or learning some coping skills with a client. And specifically for sport competitors, I there are sports therapists that you could reach out to, Suzanne, and just explain what the sport is. A good therapist is not going to care what the thing is. They're not going to care why the thing is. They're going to care that the thing exists and they're going to help you to work through it. And that's it for this week. Thanks everybody for your questions. They really keep the podcast going. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. 
And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.